Missing girls in D.C., missing Black and Latinx girls in D.C., to be precise. Ongoing police brutality sanctioned by white supremacy. All of these reasons, these ongoing reasons, why we can't afford to be free, and certainly why we can't afford to raise free people. I hear y'all. I have the feelings myself, and I'm getting the messages from you around these fears about raising free people. When we talk about the fear (laughs) of the free child, when we talk about the cost of raising free people of color inside a system that continues to dehumanize us, it stands to reason that we feel like we're not allowed this thing. It feels like a luxury, a privilege, a false idea. I don't want to raise my child with this false sense of liberation when everybody else around them, specifically white people, don't see us as human, don't see us as people who have the right to be free. And when I say white people, I don't just mean the system. I don't just mean white supremacy because it shows up in varying degrees. You have the supremacists, the ones who are outright with it. Then you have the system, the structure of it. And then you have the everyday things that happen where people feel like, no, I'm not a part of the problem. But we know from our experiences that white privilege and white supremacy intersect. But people who are a part of the problem don't always know they're a part of the problem. And so (laughs) all of that makes it really fucking complicated for us to stand up and say, yeah, I'm going to raise free people. And I feel like I got one too many messages about that over the past few days regarding the missing black and brown girls in D.C. As distorted as the information might be, I had a homegirl, thank you so much, Zalika, who is a teacher in D.C., who said, yo, some of the people on this list are girls from my class who were missing and are no longer missing. So the information is not always current, but the information is definitely relevant because we are missing and it isn't being shared as much. The information, the patterns, the things that we can do to be a part of the solution, not just find our girls, not just sharing the hashtag, but why aren't the police sharing the details that can help us find these people? We get Amber Alerts with details about what little white girls who are missing, but we don't get the details about black and brown girls and boys who are missing. And further, further beyond the why, because we, we know why, but further beyond the why, now what? As I stand to try to protect my two little black girls, how can I say then that I want them to be free? I want them to express themselves. I want them to give their opinions without fear. (laughs) I'm tearing up uh, because (laughs) I get it. I get why it doesn't feel not only safe, but it doesn't feel rational. It feels like we need to guard them and have our bodies around theirs as we kind of run through this minefield and hope that we all make it to the other side. That's one feeling. But y'all, if we act on that feeling, if we parent based on that feeling, then nothing will change. Nothing will change. And I believe that a part of the answer is to do the work of raising free people. I remember 
my mother, of course, when you become a parent, you have a different perspective <laughs> of your relationship with your mother. And I remember just kind of going through my own process with how much my mother, how she felt with having to raise free people, because she definitely was and is very much the type of woman who's like, you need to figure out how to be yourself in the world. She was never the type that said we had to try to fit into a system. My, the brother right after me, Howard, he and I have always been very outside of the box. And our mom was always very encouraging of that. Okay, if this is what you want to do, what might that look like? You know, that sort of thing. And I think about the anxiety and all the shit she must have gone through with me. I was constantly being kicked out of classrooms. I did well in school in terms of grades and all of that. But behaviorally, (laughs) it was always problematic because I had these white teachers who thought that they could talk to me like I didn't have any fucking sense and that I was supposed to feel privileged to be in their classroom and so I was just supposed to take it. And I never did. So I was constantly being kicked out of the classroom in middle school and especially in high school. I worked in the front office and they knew me for that. And I did the morning announcements, so they knew me for that. But the security also knew me because the teachers kept having to press those goddamn buttons to get security to come get me. Because if you act like I don't have any sense or that you have some sort of benefit over me and I see that you don't treat the white kids like that, I'm going to say something. But I think about the sort of anxiety that probably had my mother dealing with. And I haven't even had this conversation with her yet. I may bring her on the show to talk about it. Constantly getting the phone calls. Okay, Akila is back in the office again, or Akila is going to be in internal suspension, or she'll be home for a few days. But I remember every time I talked to her about what the problem was, she didn't have a problem with it. She had a problem with getting the phone calls from work or at work, but she didn't have a problem with me expressing myself. And that could have gone many different ways. One teacher threatened to take away my scholarship, and I had to really help her to understand why she wasn't a part of that equation at all. And these were all white teachers. I had a male white teacher who got up in my face, right in my face, and I literally threw my desk at him. And my mother wasn't upset about that either. She was upset about what he did, but she was okay with me defending myself. And now my children are not in school, as y'all know, but we're constantly faced with people who have their perspectives on our daughters being very expressive, especially our oldest, Marley, with their opinions and not feeling like they need to be these subservient beings, particularly around white people. And I get the concerns that come with that because we are not safe. We've never been safe as people of color in any fucking country. I'm not even in America right now, and we're still getting the conversations. Marley and Sage, they're doing this apprenticeship at a bakery up the road from us, and this older white woman, this South African woman, came into the bakery. The bakery is black-owned, and she was talking to them, uh, the owners of the bakery, in a way that the girls were really offended by, these um, brothers from Zimbabwe who opened this bakery. And um, she runs a shop across the street, a restaurant across the street. And she was basically saying that they were there because of her and that they were going to get, they get so much bread that they probably helped them stay in business. And But it wasn't in a way of, of like pride. It was definitely a way of condescension. And she was asking, Chris was there too. So he got to hear, I wasn't there. 
And he was so annoyed by how she was being. Of course, we didn't, they didn't say shit because that's not our business. And, and t- literally, like the business is not ours. So we didn't want to step in. But just anywhere you go, you'll see how generally white people have this way of feeling a sense of entitlement and a sense of supremacy over black people that is just undeniable. And as a parent, we want our children to be safe and we want them to be able to navigate the world and to form their own relationships with people. And oftentimes that means white people because they have, you know, they run the businesses that our children might want to be part of. So it makes it very complicated. So when I get these messages and I get my own feelings about the missing girls in DC, and then we say, yeah, but then how do I turn around and raise free people? How do I turn around and say to my child that, yes, look at the people, look at the activists who are doing this work, look at the people who are raising their voices and saying this shit isn't okay. How do I do that and then still face my own fears for their safety? The first thing is to question whether you can afford not to do that. If you can afford to raise a subservient person, to raise a person who is fearful of white power. I think that that cost is too high. And what that work looks like will vary from person to person. And of course, this is why I'm doing Raising Free People workshop, because I didn't just want to put it into my microphone in the podcast. I want to sit in circles of others, of all races, who want to do this work, because it is going to take all of us to do this work. But of course, I do it from a space of understanding why it is so vital to people of color in particular. So I wanted to offer this essay that I'd written a while back. It is um, published on forharriet.com and I wrote it in 2015. Unfortunately, (laughs) it's still very fucking relevant today. All parents need to be visionaries when it comes to our children's futures. Parenting carries no illusion of certainty, so we all get the same mini playbook with instructions to pay attention, prioritize love, set a good example, be compassionate, and hope the shit works out. Parenting has little to do with precise details and everything to do with a commitment to the big picture, the visionary goal of raising healthy, happy, emotionally well adults. That is a complex path to walk for anyone raising people today. But for parents of black children living in America, that visionary path is riddled with potholes from a history of social, governmental, and institutionalized racism against people with our babies' complexions. Like all parents, black parents hope the universal wish for any child they love, confidence, comfort, and the freedom to succeed in whatever brings them joy. And we don't just hope this for our children. We attempt, like all parents, to ensure that it happens. We do this by providing them with the leadership, guidance, and resources we believe will help them to thrive in life and to ultimately be comfortable walking around as themselves in the world. But Black parents, we know that the confidence and strong sense of autonomy that we work towards as we raise our children can be difficult to impart when our race puts our children at risk. Rebecca John perfectly captures the sentiment 
on the importance of race as part of an identity lens in her must-read article on everyday feminism. She says, Race matters not only because it is important to us on a personal level, but because it is still unabatedly justification for injustice and the dominant structure that shapes our racist society. This article, in many ways, is a response piece to my article about respecting children's autonomy while still giving them the guidance they need. In that piece, my assertion was that a strong sense of confidence and comfort in making choices in accordance to their own desires, also called autonomy, is a critical life skill for our children to begin to understand and embody. I addressed three ways parents could stop stifling their children's self-expression and instead allow them to practice experiencing and working through their emotional spectrum within the safety of their home. I address the importance of helping our children see the effects of their own behaviors and exploring the world through their own lens, instead of holding on to rigid ideas of what children should and should not be. I was floored by the number of adults who felt the way I felt and who were raising children who had the privilege of expressing themselves and experiencing respect at the hands of the adults in their homes. As I read through the dozens of comments on the Facebook post about the article, I came across the comments of two women who expressed concern for an important lens through which nothing in my article seemed to have been viewed. The two comments were from mothers raising black children, just like me. They raised the perspective that Autonomy for children had to be managed differently for parents of black children because of how children are viewed and treated outside of our homes. These mothers were speaking to the fact that black girls in schools are punished at exponentially greater and harsher rates than their white peers, and that black boys are more likely to be mistaken as older, be perceived as guilty, and face police violence if accused of a crime. Essentially, their assertion was that black children have to be made aware that they are not afforded the same luxuries of overt dissent or the expectation of equal treatment, both aspects of autonomy, as their white peers. This is the belly of the challenge we face as parents of black children, how to help our children manage the reality of racism without compromising the important goal of confidence in autonomy. So many questions such multi-layered answers. This warrants ongoing dialogue and a willingness to push against the dominant structure. And as we undertake that task with confidence, courage, and healthy doses of fear, I offer these suggestions on how to manage this visionary path for Black children. Autonomy, again, is about the strong sense of confidence and comfort in making choices in accordance with their own desires. Opportunities to learn and practice autonomy are plentiful when children are among their peers, on playgrounds, sometimes in classrooms, and in other group settings. This is where children become more consciously aware of their environment and themselves within it. They witness reactions and interactions with varying personalities. They see how other children are like and unlike them. They establish preferences and display tendencies. Our children begin to discover the world around them and we, in turn, discover our children as they unfold. Being able to communicate their needs becomes more important because their needs are shifting as their perspectives expand. How they see the world and how the world treats them are part of what shapes our children. Certainly, their self-expression and their sense of identity are influenced by these experiences. 
But parents of black children do not have the luxury of a margin of error and the freedom to self-express. As parents, having a broader view of the institutionalized aspect of racism warrants concern for the safety of our children. This is because our children must exist and express themselves inside a culture that consistently exhibits a lack of regard for and an ignorance-based fear of black people. This begs the question of whether it is safe for us to raise our children to be confident and self-aware, or will that invite more chances for them to be unfairly targeted and harmed by the social or legal arms of a racist-dominant structure? Why confident autonomy is not the issue. Confidence does not invite conflict any more than race causes racism. To fear our children's safety within a racist-dominant structure is natural and also wise, but that fear cannot cause us to lose sight of the reality that how things have been is not automatically how they will always be. And if our children are not willing to affect change by speaking up on their own behalf and refusing to fall in line and live with the priority of avoiding conflict, then nothing will change, and they will not evolve into a place of better understanding and the necessary building of new structures that operate independently of the long-standing racist ones on which we currently rely. Harsher punishments for minor misconduct, a significantly higher percentage of in-school arrest, and all the other factors that comprise the school-to-prison pipeline, among other significant proof of structural inequality, make it critical that parents of black and brown children in America prepare their children for that reality. So, what can we do for our children today, and what can they do for themselves? For starters, we can make sure that they know their rights and how to deal with specific legal situations. We can give our girls examples of how to rise up against toxic messages. We can brace ourselves and tell them the reality that killing black children in America is tradition. We remind our girls that their hair is a source of pride, not shame. We support our sons' rights to define and embrace their sexuality. We discuss the implications of black women being the fastest-growing group of people being incarcerated in America. We educate our children about the common, racially-driven microaggressions against black women in the workplace. And of course, this by no means is an exhaustive list, nor is it intended to summarize the experience of black children and their parents in America or anywhere else. It's a starting point, though, and it offers plenty of room for exploration within each of these items, all of which segue into the myriad other issues Black people must deal with in America and the world over. Trusting a future we cannot visualize. Perhaps our foremothers and forefathers of the 1700s and 1800s could not have fathomed the civil rights movement. Can we fathom what the world will be like, say, 50 years from now? Our children deserve to experience confident self-direction, a sense of community, and a willingness to risk expression. That can guide change in ways that we as adults, with both the benefit and baggage of our past, might not be able to see. Because we cannot protect them by cautioning them against fully shining. We must strategize and we must organize and we must communicate our needs and prioritize our communities. We must not try to stay under the radar because it might be safer. History itself shows us that black children are targeted not because of what they say or do, but because of the fact that they're black. Give your children the full story 
show them examples of the reality in which we live, help them develop into people who will be themselves and with an understanding of what it might take to safely navigate this terrain while it is still so adamantly against the progress and power of Black people. So that's the offering I have, and I hope that creates some dialogue among you and your own communities about the things we can do to not so much focus on the fears, but to focus on designing space for us and our children to develop and practice the solutions. And I encourage you to head over to akilasrichards.com forward slash RFP, same as last episode, Raising Free People, because I want to do this work with you. Peace and love. Thanks for listening to Fair the Free Child podcast. Like the show? Then show your love or give your feedback at akilasrichards.com.